0: Hello, everyone. Welcome to our listeners in the Big Apple from around the U.S. and around the world. I'm Jeff Goodman, and this is Rediscovering New York. Professionally, I'm a real estate broker with Brown Harris Stevens, and as my listeners know, I love New York. Rediscovering New York is a weekly program about the history, texture, and vibe of our amazing city. And we do it through interviews with historians, local business owners, nonprofit organizations, journalists, preservationists, local musicians, and artists and the occasional elected official. On some shows, we focus on an individual New York neighborhood exploring its history and its current energy. What makes that particular New York neighborhood special? On some shows, like tonight's, we focus on an interesting and vital color of the city and its history that's not focused on one particular neighborhood. On prior episodes, we've covered topics as diverse and illuminating as American presidents who are from New York, Uh, We've talked about the history of women activists and the women's suffrage movement in the city. We've looked at the history of African Americans, the history of the city's LGBT rights movement. Uh, We've explored the history of bicycles and cycling. We've talked about the history of punk and opera in New York. New York is centers of punk and opera, like many other things. We've talked about our public library systems. We have three of them, not just one. Uh, We've visited some of our greatest train stations and even some of our bridges. After the broadcast, each show is available on podcast. You can hear us on Apple, Spotify, SoundCloud, Stitcher, and other services. Tonight's one of those special shows where we're not going to focus on a neighborhood, but on a very special part of the city. We're going to be looking at colonial New York, what New York was like when two different colonial masters ran the place, specifically the Dutch when it was New Amsterdam and the British when it was New York until the time of the American Revolution. I'm very grateful as my first guest tonight is Russell Shorto. Russell is a journalist and a best-selling author. His books have been translated into Dutch, German, Spanish, French, Portuguese, Hebrew, Russian, Chinese, Japanese, Korean, Italian, Polish, and Catalan. The book that we're going to be talking about most tonight that Russell authored is The Island at the Center of the World. It was a national bestseller in the United States and it and Descartes' Bones were named among the top 100 books of the year by the New York Times. The Island at the Center of the World was recently optioned to be developed as an American television series, which I want to ask him about, and a musical theater production of it is in development in the Netherlands. His most recent book, Revolution Song, the Story of America's Founding in Six Remarkable Lives, was published in 2018. His next book, Small Time, A Story of My Family and the Mob, will be published in February 2021. We might have to leave that for a future show. Russell Shorto, a very hearty welcome to Rediscovering New York. Thank you very much, Jeff. I'm happy to be with you. Where are you from originally?
1: Johnstown, Pennsylvania. That's the town I write about in in the book you in my book that's coming out that you just referenced.
0: Oh, the home of the Johnstown Jets, also known as the Charlestown Chiefs from Slapshot from the 70s. Right. That was a very funny movie. Um, did you always want to be a journalist and an author? Uh,
1: I always wanted to be a writer. I didn't know um, how to go about it. <laughs> I mean, uh, I didn't I knew I wanted to be a writer, but I also knew that I didn't want to study writing. I had this notion that you you write you, you learn to be a writer by simply reading and writing and experiencing life. Um so uh, I was determined that I wasn't going to, you know, do a creative writing program or something like that. So it's probably the, the the hard way around, but that's eventually what I did.
0: I found it interesting that someone who was a journalist wrote The Island at, at the Center of the World, which we're going to talk about in a minute. What were some of your earliest gigs as a writer? What were some of the first things that you did?
1: Uh, I did a lot of travel writing early on. I was, you know, in the years after college, I um, I traveled a lot because i wanted to explore, and uh, I started uh, getting travel pieces published, and then I got one published in GQ, and then that was kind of a regular gig working for GQ for a good while, Um, not just about travel, but I covered all kinds of things for them, Um, and uh, that actually led to my first book, uh, which was called Gospel Truth, Uh, then editor at GQ, Art Cooper. He, even though, I mean, people have an idea of GQ as being, you know, about men's fashion and things like that, which it is. But uh, it, there's a wide range of pretty deep subject matter in it. And Art, I said I wanted to write, I wanted to cover a group of biblical scholars, and he let me do it, and that became
0: my first book. Oh, how long after you started writing did you did you write Gospel?
1: Um, well, I don't know, because when did I start writing? You know, I mean, you, uh, you're always scribbling and things. So, yeah. Um, but uh, let me think. I wrote that in 1995. So a long time ago. <laughs> oh.
0: What was the background that had you decide that you would write um the Island at the Center of the World. I have to tell our listeners, it's a fantastic book. It, it, it's the most exciting book I've ever read about New York, and I highly recommend it. Um, what was going on that had you decide that this is, this is going to be the project you're going to work on next?
1: You know, it was just, I, I was living in the East Village, and uh, I, my daughter was born, and she was a toddler, and the nearest open space to take her to run around was the churchyard of St. Mark's and the Bowery. And uh, if you are familiar with it, the tombs of, of a lot of the first families of New York are, are flush with the ground there. Um, and she would run around. I just thought it was kind of charming to see this little girl running around among the graves. And she didn't care. And, um, and in the, the foundation of the church is the tomb of Stuyvesant, Peter Stuyvesant. Uh, and I, I was, I guess, impressed by my own ignorance of New York's beginnings, but it started with that, I, I tried to find out, I talked to a couple of uh, people I knew who were historians of New York, who, who one after another said, oh, I don't, I don't really know much about the Dutch period. Um, and somebody eventually put me in touch with Charlie Goering who uh, is still at it, translating the records of the colony of New Netherland. He's been at it since 1974. This is 12,000 pages of material um, and I uh, periodically uh, completes a volume, and it's translated, published, and annotated, and um, it opened up this whole
0: world to me. And let, that is a New York State archive now, tra, uh, Charlie Daring's work, is that it right? He has been yeah.
1: always at the um, in the New York State Library and Archive mm-hmm. building in Albany, um, and, that's, and uh, the reason for that is that's where the actual records were, and the history of that is... Uh, The as you alluded to, the Dutch um, uh, were in control until 1664. The English took over and named the place New York. Uh, They took those Dutch records and they became the basis for the the English records. And uh, eventually all of those state records wound up in the state library. And uh, those actual uh, documents from the 1600s are what the translators work from.
0: Do you speak any Dutch?
1: Yeah, I do. Um, I first started um, uh, learning Dutch when I decided I was I really wanted to work on this book. And while I was learning modern Dutch, um, Charlie and yani Veenema, who is uh, she just recently retired, she worked with him since 1984. She's a, a Dutch historian. Uh, they would I I would they invited me into their their corner of the state library and would put uh, like a facsimile of a record down in front of me and because I, I also wanted to be able to make my way around in a document and the, the handwriting is, as you can imagine, very different. The, the language has changed a lot and, uh, and, you know, it's all very loopy in the scribe, scribe script, uh, so it's, it's tricky. Um, but let, then to finish uh, that, I uh, then I ended up living in Amsterdam for about six and a half years. So, yeah, I spoke Dutch now.
0: Oh, wow. Wow. I didn't know that. That's great. It's a great place. It's a great city. Um, a little, uh, before we talk about New Amsterdam, a little colonial geography for our listeners. Uh, New Netherland was the Dutch colony in what would become most of the mid-Atlantic part of the United States. And its, mini- its administrative capital was New Amsterdam at the tip of Manhattan. Um, Before we talk about some of the details of the book and the people, let's talk a bit about how the Dutch established their colonies and how they differed from the way the Spanish, the Portuguese, the French, and even the English set up their colonies at the time. What was unique about the way the Dutch did it?
1: Uh, well, for one thing they were, um, and I, and I would say still are, um, good at, um, sort of learning the local ways. Um, you know, the English would just kind of put down a grid wherever they were. Uh, the Dutch, uh, Learned. They went. They they either fought with or or traded with the locals, and they learned their language and and learned their way around. Uh, and they established these outposts, so these kind of military slash trading posts. Um, the English uh, were very big on settlement colonies, which is one reason that English is so widespread spoken today, and why Dutch is not, because uh, they were more or less content to blend in as much as possible and uh, do this trading and then send all the goods home. And, and that turns out to be a very good uh, um, method for building up an empire in a short time. You know, the Dutch golden age was a very brief period. uh, Whereas the English, the British empire uh, started around that time, but it, it, it uh, lasted
0: for centuries. The sun didn't set on part of it until uh, right. uh, later to the last century. Um, you know, one thing that was unique about the Dutch is that they also, you know, to use a modern term, jobbed out the administration of their colonies, including New Netherland, to private companies. Even though those companies had a monopoly, they, they sort of subcontracted how they ran uh, some colonies to, to a private company. And, of course, here it was the Dutch West India Company. Um, why did the Dutch choose the tip of Manhattan Island to be the capital of New Netherland?
1: um they uh originally were spread out all over there um they had you know a, a few families in uh on the connecticut river a few families uh in different locations up the, the hudson river which they called the north river uh, uh small settlements on what they call the south river that is the delaware um and then there was uh, very early in the life of the colony uh, there was a problem around uh, what's now Albany, where uh, there were some Dutch soldiers who, uh, they, they, in Star Trek terms, they violated the prime directive. The prime directive was, <laughs> don't interfere with the locals. Uh, so they got involved in a war between the Mohawk and Mahicans, and some of these Dutchmen died. And that kind of sent shockwaves, and they realized, oh, you know, it's dangerous out, <laughs> out there in the wilderness, so uh, they recalled everyone. And uh, that's when Peter Minuit, who was then the director of the colony, said, you know, this southern tip of Manhattan Island is where we're going to put the base because it was right there sticking out into the harbor. They, could, they knew perfectly well that it was a world class harbor. And they reckoned that that was uh, and the island was big enough to, to as, as we know, to,
0: to hold a lot of people. And there was a f- uh, fresh supply of oysters that they could take advantage of as well, <laughs> which would, for me would be a good uh, would be a reason. Um, before we get to the part of the story that for me is really riveting, and that's the conflict between some notable people and the events that led up to New Amsterdam getting us charter as a city, one of the things I love about your book is the depiction of New Amsterdam in the 1640s. You know, hearing the stories of the people if not for the years that had happened and not for them speaking Dutch, it was almost like out of a vignette of what you would expect that New Yorkers today would be like, you know, ambitious, enterprising, maybe a little obnoxious and a little rough and tumble. Um, What was New Amsterdam like in, in those decades, the 1640s and 1650s, right before New Netherland was taken over by the British?
1: Yeah, well, it was all of those things. And in addition, which is also a precursor to New York, it was very mixed. You know, the, in, the, in 1643, a visiting Jesuit uh, uh, priest reported hearing 18 languages being spoken in New Amsterdam. And at, and at that time, there were probably somewhere around 500 people. So 18 languages. So I'd like to say New York was New York even before it was New York. Um, so add that mix of languages and customs and all of that to the mix. And it was a, um, it was a very cosmopolitan village. Um, it was a place where uh, uh, everybody was a trader. I mean, whether you were a baker or a brewer or, or, or a wheelwright or whatever you were, you also had a piece of whatever shipment was going out. You, you bought into a piece of the, because, you know, at the same time, the Dutch are doing this world tra- travel and very much related to it they invented the building blocks of capitalism. They invented the stock exchange and the concept of shares of stock and the, and the, uh, the modern sense of a corporation.
0: And also amassing capital, get, taking profit and being able to invest in other things. I think That's, that first yeah, happened exactly. in the Netherlands. And
1: so even on a small scale, there were people who were, who were um, uh, um, maids uh, who uh, bought shipments of furs, had a piece of the shipment and, and would make a profit. So all yeah, all that was going on, and you you know you throw in that that there were always relations with not just quote the Indians, but there were different tribes, uh many different tribes. There were the Muncie peoples around in and around Manhattan and on Long Island that you had and then uh, all the way up the hudson and and they keep changing. the customs change, the languages change, and there were people who could communicate with them, who could speak with them.
0: All right, well, we're going to take a short break. And when we come back, we're going to continue our conversation with best selling author Russell Shorter, who's the author of The Island at the Center of the World, which not coincidentally is about New York and about Manhattan specifically. We'll be back in a moment.
2: You're listening to Talk Radio NYC at www.talkradio.nyc. Now broadcasting 24 hours a day.
0: back and you're back to rediscovering new york and this show about new york in colonial times my first guest is journalist and best-selling author russell shorter among russell's many books he's written island at the center of the world the quintessential book about the founding of new york city uh russell i want to ask you uh, a question about your newest book um, my family and the mob that's going to be published uh in early next year Yes. Okay. What 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 inspired you to? Uh, we're not going to talk too much about that, but I just want to ask you what inspired you do to to uh, write that book.
1: Um, well, yeah, you're right. It's a it's a departure for me. Most of the history that I write narrative history, but it's mostly uh, centuries ago, and so you're just in archives working with old documents. Um, I'd always known that my my grandfather father and namesake was. Uh, was a small town mobster. Um, and I knew him vaguely when I was little. Uh, but by that time, by the time I was aware of things, he was kind of ostracized fam- from the family. Um, and, and, but the family didn't talk about it. There was kind of a, I don't know if you would say code of silence, but it wasn't something you talked about. But then one day an elderly relative said to me, hey, you're a writer, this is history, You know what about it? And I kind of realized, okay, whatever anxieties people had that generation is dead and gone. It's now history, and that is what I do. And if I don't dig into it now, it's going to be lost. Um, so then I had I, I explored it with uh, a sense of urgency. And on the one hand, it's just, it's the broad, the backdrop is the small town mob in America, which was everywhere from Fresno to Schenectady. Um, but the the focus of it is. This man who had my name, who I was named after, who with his brother-in-law um, ran, basically ran the town. They they did the numbers and they uh, made the payoffs to the cops and to the mayor. And, you know, they had the governor over for dinner and just, you know, all that stuff.
0: Well, I'm looking forward to reading it when it comes out. And maybe I can so even it's called, get you to... Okay,
1: since you asked, it's called uh, Small Time. And it the uh, the launch of it will be February first at the New York Historical Society. I, I I dare
0: say it's going to be a virtual launch. Hmm. Well, I will be there either online or at, uh, <laughs> at on premise. Uh, my office is around the corner from there. So that'll okay. also be convenient. Um, moving back to New Amsterdam, um, I want to ask you about a couple of uh, people in the book. But I had a general question first. Um, was the depictions of some of the characters based, were they all based on actual people? Or did you create some characters who sort of fit the bill of what people were like in New Amsterdam at that time?
1: You're talking about the island at the center of the world. My yeah. Father? Yes. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. I write nonfiction. This is not. I don't, there's no fiction in it. This okay. is all, Yeah. These are all. This is um, history in which and and everything comes from. That's why I was working for so long with the uh, the records in in which you you know the, the court cases and council minutes and and letters and if I say something about you know the sun was shining on them it was because somewhere somebody mentions it was sunny that day. Uh, so, yeah, I don't make any of that up. These are all people from the historical record, and all the interactions uh, are are from from letters and documents.
0: Well, before we get to talking about, to me, who perhaps was the most famous of the Dutch New Amsterdamers, Peter Stuyvesant, I want to talk about Adrian van der Donk. For me, he's the more intriguing and fascinating person in the history. In some ways, he seems like the quintessential type of New Yorker, first an immigrant, a real go-getter. Then a businessman, also a lawyer, and then wanting to take some action uh to get, although I don't think they would have called it politics, maybe they did, but what what we would call politics today to impact the future of the place that he that that he lived in. Um when did you how did you first learn about Vanderdunk? Was it in the records from the state?
1: Yeah, in the records and and uh yeah, I I spent a long time with, as I say, the help of Charlie Garing and Yanni Venema guiding me. Um kind of swimming or drowning in these records. And anybody who's ever done any archival work knows that you, I mean, it's just stuff, you know, there's nobody to, to, to say, this is what's important or whatever. I mean, it's just, you know, he stole my pig and he stole my wife. And, you know, I like, how do you, how do you organize this? But slowly after several months, I realized there was there was this conflict at the center of it, and the conflict was between these two men, Peter Stuyvesant and Adrian Vanderdonk, and it was really a conflict over the future, over what this colony meant, what it should mean, who it was for. Stuyvesant was running it for the West India Company; that was his job, and Vanderdonk was appointed as. President, they named him President of the Commonality. So, so he was the kind of head of the opposition party, um, and the, the people in the colony wanted the full blanket of rights and laws and, and privileges from the home country to apply to them. And so, with that kind of uh, dynamic, and he was the, one of the reasons they appointed him was he was the only lawyer in the colony. And, uh, uh, and and I think he would have seen did see himself very much as a politician, both in the colony. And he then eventually goes to the home country, to the Netherlands and argues the case. And he's really working behind the scenes there, um, uh, uh, playing the, the strings of power to try to uh, to get his way.
0: What kind of a man was van der Donk? Did you get an insight into into things about his personality and to maybe what made him tick? He was uh,
1: uh, he, he was a lawyer, so he was he he, he had a legalistic sensibility.
0: But and by was, the way, I love the story about how he studied at the university. Well, that he studied at the University of Leiden at the same time that the pilgrims were there, and his first stop in the Netherlands actually was in present-day Albany in Fort Orange, as the equivalent of the district attorney, you know, with a feather it, in his cap. Right <laughs>
1: say. So his first job it, they called it the it, the Dutch title is a scout, which. Uh, in english would translate to scout but it's more like sheriff so you were the lawman in the sense you know he would have to go out and collar the bad guys and bring them to justice so he uh it was a more robust sense of what being a lawyer was than than most lawyers would be comfortable with today so he yeah he was uh he could be a tough guy and as that you know he he would have a sword at his side and uh but uh, at the same time, he was um, arguing before Stuyvesant and his council for what he thought was the uh, the direction that the colony should go in.
0: And of course, Stuyvesant didn't uh, uh, want it to happen or didn't agree with it. So Van der Donk went to The Hague, to uh, the Estates General and, you know, argued. How long was he there for to try to convince them to... to uh... He was
1: there close to three years. Um, he They, they finally uh, uh, agreed to what he wanted. He wanted the colony to be fully administered, not by the West India Company, but by the Dutch government. And um, they finally agreed to it. And within days, uh, Oliver Cromwell declared war on the Dutch Republic, the English leader, and uh, suddenly they rescinded the order uh, because wartime is a very bad time to, to experiment with political reform. Uh, so they rescinded the order, and instead of Vanderdonk going home a hero, they put him in prison because they were afraid that he was going to go back and, and uh, uh, foment uh, uh, unrest. So it was a dramatic turn of events for him and, and for the colony and ultimately for New York.
0: Did you discover things about Stuyvesant, who he was and the way he ran New Amsterdam that wasn't widely known by other people who had researched the history?
1: Certainly that wasn't that weren't widely known uh, by most people, but um, uh, the the handful of scholars, I mean, Charlie Gehring probably knows more about Peter Stuyvesant than anyone. And, and I don't think I uncovered anything that he wasn't aware of, but um, Stuyvesant, you know, Charlie for one thinks that uh, I was, I think a little harsh on Stuyvesant, uh, portraying him a little sort of one dimensionally in the book. Um, And uh, I have since done more research into Stuyvesant. I think I have a maybe a little bit more nuanced sense of him now. Uh, A a scholar named Dennis Micah has been doing a lot of research into him and and how he worked. He was in a difficult position because he was the head of, he was the company representative in the colony. He was the head of the colony. But you had all these independent freelance merchants there. uh, And he has to appease his bosses at home in the West India company, but he also has these uh, um, local businessmen who he he wants to make happy. And he very, it's, it's subtle stuff, but he skillfully works things so that they can get their way. And, and yet the West India company isn't, uh, doesn't feel like they're paying for all this, but other people are, are uh, getting the benefits.
0: And when did Vanderdonk come back to New Amsterdam with the charter? What year was that?
1: well he uh, they they uh, you're right, he did get the charter. Uh, they finally agreed to a charter, a municipal charter for the city of New Amsterdam. but then he had to stay uh, in the netherlands but um, it, but that was a unique thing that um, it was you know the, every, if you think about it, every Dutch city in the world was in the Netherlands, but here is this one other city. At the southern tip of Manhattan Island, that was chartered officially, uh, a Dutch city, and by the way, uh, Brooklyn or Brooklyn got uh, a charter as well.
0: Um, one of the parts of the story that I found really fascinating is what happened the morning when the people of New Amsterdam woke up to find four British warships in the harbor. Um, it's not a story that sort of had a heroic fight, uh, as in the people of New Amsterdam were linked to fight to remain Dutch and, and fight the British. What happened that morning and, and, and what, what, what ensued that day?
1: Um, when the English came, they, they sort of, it's a complicated story, but they, they, um, they uh, uh, sent Stuyvesant on, on a wild goose chase, first of all, upriver, um, so he wouldn't be there. Then he kind of realizes something's up. So he turns around and comes back in or, just in time to see this transpiring. This, and he's up on the wall, on the parapets of the fort, looking at these ships in the harbor. And um, he, by that time, he had been writing to the home country saying, please send more soldiers. We don't, we don't have enough gunpowder. Uh, you know, they knew that the English were were likely to do something like this. Um, but by when they actually did... Uh, he wanted to fight. The townspeople didn't want to fight because they knew that they they were outgunned. And um, they also knew that if you put up a fight, according to the rules of of, uh, of warfare at the time, if you begin to fight, then you open yourself up to rape and pillage and plunder. Uh, and, and there were um, hundreds of Englishmen lining the, the Brooklyn shore waiting to come across if that were to happen. Uh, so they, ang- they there was this angry dispute between Stuyvesant and his townspeople. And finally, they talked him, literally talked him down from, from the walls of the fort. Mm. Um, and he uh, agreed to... But then a the, very interesting thing happens where he agreed to terms, uh, and then he negotiated uh, a transfer of power that was incredibly liberal that basically allowed the place to stay Dutch. The Dutch could keep their, their positions, more Dutch people kept emigrating, um, people kept their property, uh, every, most everything stayed that way. And and that is what I argue at the end of the book uh, is what allowed New York ultimately to have a different character than Boston or, or anywhere else in, in uh, the colonies.
0: Mm. Well, that was the last question. We're almost out of time. That was the last question I wanted to ask you. In your view, you know, how did what New Amsterdam was, not just in terms of the, of the, um, terms of the, of the surrender of the handover, um, what was about it? What, was there something special about it that helped shape not just the way New York developed, but also the way the United States? Was there something about New Amsterdam that has carried over into, into the country's national character?
1: Well, the two things in particular that the Dutch brought that shaped New York uh, tolerance, which they pioneered in the 17th century, and the principles of free trade of capitalism. Uh, and if you think of it, those you know that 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 tolerance is why why there were 18 languages being spoken there, and that was just simply bought, copied from the home country, and this trading sensibility. And if you think of uh, of uh, Of those two things uh as sort of ingredients those are ingredients for for new york city and and because New York uh, became what it did uh, people it it spread in by the nineteenth century when waves of immigrants come they they land in Manhattan and they see all these different people in different languages and religions and they're all struggling to get ahead and they they stayed for a while, and they maybe their children then moved westward to Ohio and, and further west, and they kept going west and They kept bringing some of that sensibility with them, so that I think is, uh, is how it spread
0: hmm. well I've li- I studied British history and uh, lived in London for a while, but i 'm a native New Yorker, and as I love to say, I thank the stars that the Dutch founded us and not the British. <laughs> it led to the incredible place that New York is today. Russell Shorto, thank you so much for being a guest on Rediscovering New York in this first part of our program about colonial New York. Thank you, Jeff. Our first guest has been Russell Shorto. Russell is a journalist and bestselling author. His fantastic book about New York is called The Island at the Center of the World. You can find it on Amazon and many other services. Russell, thank you so much. Thanks again. We'll take a short break. And when we come back, we will speak with our second guest, who's a returning guest to the show, about what New York was like in the second part of our colonial history, when the British were here. We'll be back in a moment.
2: You're listening to Talk Radio NYC. Uplift, educate, empower.
7: The potential for a more rewarding life. A life that matters. But how do you get there? The answer is in a best-selling book by the coach of the successful and wealthy, Ken D. Foster. The courage to change everything, daily strategies and wisdom to awaken your hidden genius and transform your life. With this powerful yet amazingly simple daily guide, your future is in your hands. You will be empowered to unlock your potential, bring out your true gifts, increase your wealth and take your life and business to a new level. Get your life-transforming copy of Ken D. Foster's The Courage to Change Everything by going to CourageToChange.us That's CourageToChange.us Quite frankly, there's no other book like this. Imagine what your life could be like if you had at your fingertips the success principles to create the life you've always wanted. Are you ready to live your dream? Go to CourageToChange.us
0: back and you're back to rediscovering new york support for the program comes from our sponsors the mark myman team mortgage strategists at freedom mortgage for assistance in any kind of residential mortgage mark and his team can be reached at 646-306-4735 <coughs> excuse me A little frog in my throat here and support also comes from the law offices of thomas siakam focusing on wills, estate planning, probate, and inheritance litigation. Tom and his staff can be reached at 212-495-0317. Our show is about New York, its neighborhoods, its history, and the myriad textures of our amazing city. There's another great show on the air about New York and specifically about the business of real estate, Good Morning New York with Vince Rocco, my friend and colleague at Brown Harris Stevens. Vince's show airs live on Tuesday mornings at 9 a.m. on voiceamerica.com and also on podcast. You can like the show on Facebook and you can follow us on Instagram and Twitter. My handle's there at NYC. If you have questions or if you'd like to get on our mailing list or have some comments for me, please email me, jeff at rediscoveringnewyork.nyc. One other note before we get to our second guest, even though Rediscovering New York is not a show about real estate, when I'm not on the air, I'm indeed a real estate agent in our amazing city where I help my clients buy, sell, lease, and rent property. If you or someone you care about is considering a move into out of or within New York, I would love to help you with all those real estate needs. You can reach me and my team at 646-306-4761. Well, our second guest is no stranger to rediscovering New York. That's Jeremy Wilcox. He is a licensed New York City tour guide, a New York native, and the owner of Custom NYC Tours. His small group of private walking tours focuses on the city's neighborhoods, its history, art, and architecture. Jeremy also serves on the board of the Guides Association of New York City, and one of the oldest and most active tour guide associations in the United States, just like New York City is. Jeremy, welcome back to Rediscovering New York.
6: Thank you for having me.
0: Long time no speak. Indeed. Jeremy was on the show last week about Victorian flatbush. This is a little bit different time in New York's history. Um, One question before we get started. What had you decide that you would go into designing and leading tours, Jeremy. Well, like, you
6: know, a lot of New Yorkers, I just became very curious about my own city and, you know, discovering it. And I just started going out on my own walks and doing my own explorations. And Kurt, at the same time, I was having a sort of uh, crisis of, you know, what I was doing with my life. And then I realized I could take this sort of thing that I was passionate about and actually turn it into a career. So I took my solo walks and I started charging people to come on and join me. And that's how I became a tour guide.
0: Moving on to New York from New Amsterdam. Of course, the British renamed it New York when they took it over from the Dutch. Um, we heard about how New Amsterdam surrendered to the English and negotiated favorable terms to continue life as much as they could in the way that they were uh, living it. First, I want to ask you a political question. Um, do we know how English crown representatives were received on a personal level after the handover?
6: Uh- in terms of by the, the sort of the people of the
0: colony, um,
6: yes. yep. as far as I know, you know, there was obviously it wasn't the smoothest transition um, in terms of the sort of politics of it. But for your average day to day colonist, you know, just life went on, you know, in the new Amsterdam colony, you know, as Russell was talking about, there were obviously always waves of immigrants coming in. There were waves of new people coming in for a lot of the Dutch people who remained there, as he mentioned, got to keep their land, um, you know. Based on a lot of my research, it seems like this was just more immigrants coming in. It was just more new people. You know, there was a continuity in terms of, I guess, the day-to-day life for your average person. You know, they were, it was a working trade colony before and it remained a working trade colony afterwards.
0: Were there a lot of English people who all of a sudden flooded the colony and well, not flooded, but who came in greater numbers in the years right after the English took over New York?
6: Certainly, obviously, but at the same time, there was still immigration coming from, you know, the Netherlands, um, but there was a lot of people coming over from England, as well as a big wave of immigration of people coming over from Europe. Um, So a lot of the stuff that was already happening Mm -hmm. in the new Netherlands colony continued to happen in the New York colony, just so sort of was just on steroids, you know, more immigration, a greater mix, um, although obviously the English were a lot stricter about many things.
0: Did life for former Am- Amsterdam, New Amsterdamers and newly minted New Yorkers change much in the years right after the handover?
6: Not necessarily. Again, if you were a working day-to-day person in the colony, your your life really didn't change. You know, just sort of who you were working for changed. Some of the conditions changed. But, you know, if you owned land before, you still own that land. It's just you had new, a lot of new neighbors and the population was starting to grow. But... You know, it just, for your average person, it really wasn't that different. It's just sort of like, okay, who am I answering to now versus who was I answering to three years ago?
0: Well, when um, uh, New Amsterdam was taken over a concrete, I don't know what the best word is <laughs> described uh, for it. Um, the right first it was- sorry
6: politely surrendered
0: politely surrendered right right so, to not get the the uh the city blown to bits you know it kind of reminded me a little bit of um what happened in new orleans in the civil war uh most of the south fought to the death but uh as soon as admiral farragut uh sailed up the mississippi and took over Fortitude, to the citizens of new orleans surrendered said just don't burn us down you know uh, you know uncle we're uh you know you can come in and take us over um First, it was the English. They didn't become the British until 1707 after the Act of Union, when Scotland officially became part of the kingdom that had been England and Wales. Um, One thing that um, the British Empire has New York to thank for instead of the other way around was a substantial uh, milestone in the freedom of the press. Um, uh, Who was John Peter Zenger?
6: So John Peter Zenger was basically a journalist, I guess by today's standards, you know, we'd call him a muckraking journalist. Um, and he founded a paper that was called the New York Weekly Journal. And he became very famous as, you know, about, you know, nearly half a decade before the revolution. Um, because sort of the cases around him really set the precedent for what would become freedom of the press in america in particular he became very well known because he was very very critical or his paper was very critical of the ruling colonial government at the time his paper the new york weekly journal would regularly print editorials and, and articles that were critical of the royal governor of new york whose name was william cosby and
0: so bill cosby,
6: people, bill cosby yeah, the, uh, <laughs> not the first controversial bill, bill cosby in this country's history and you know, this really, obviously, this really started to get the ire of, uh, of Governor Cosby. Um, and eventually, Zenger finds, finds himself sued for libel. Um, and then this gets taken up in the court over there. And basically, what his lawyers argued was that if you have the truth behind you, even if you are uh, critical, and it's, it's, it's not, it doesn't maybe necessarily seem fair and balanced, you're kind of really ribbing the government. But as long as you have the truth behind you, you can prove what you are saying. It's not liable. And while obviously this really doesn't get codified in the way we think of it today until after the revolution with the Constitution and the Bill of Rights, this really was the first time this kind of precedent that the press does have the right to publish whatever they want. Um, even if they are critical of the government, the government doesn 't have the right to come in and shut down a paper or arrest someone who 's running a paper just because they 're not printing the type of coverage that they would prefer um, you know and these precedents have to get set by these kind of fights and this he was you know so influential in this regard that whenever I take people to Federal Hall National Monument down on Wall Street as part of my downtown tours in one of the back rooms at Federal hall. Um, they actually have a whole section dedicated to Zenger and the work that he did. And there's like a replica of his printing press and talking about how this, you know, early pre-revolutionary paper kind of set these important standards.
0: Mm. The Zenger case was in the early 1730s and and that was in the middle of the time between the polites, between the surrender in 1664 and, and, and the revolution. The, the British, um, controlled New York for three times longer than the Dutch did. Um, how did New York change in the time that the, that the British were here from the time they took it over until the revolution?
6: I mean, the first and foremost is the city just was growing. Uh, famously, the northern limits of the new Amsterdam colony was Wall Street. And it was so named because there was a literal wall. It was a wooden wall that marked the northern end of the territory. Well, that starts to come down and they start pushing northward. Um, the city starts growing. You have, again, more waves of immigrants coming in. The city is becoming a little bit more um, rigid in a lot of ways. Certainly it was more orderly from the British perspective than when Stuyvesant was running things. Um, so it's just, it's, it's growing and the British are starting to gain more, you know, put down more control. And that sort of leads you up into the second half of the 1700s where the colonists are starting to get a little bit discontent with uh, British rule. Uh, versus half a century before. So it's growing and getting more contentious is the way to sum it up.
0: Mm. Well, we're going to take a short break. And when we come back, we're going to talk about New York right before the revolution. But I do want to make one other note that uh, despite the uh, the freedoms that were uh, sort of established in the Zenger case, uh, there was another side to New York history that was not about freedom, but about enslavement. There were a good number of enslaved peoples who were living in, New- in and around New York at the time. Um, We're going to take a short break. And when we come back, we're going to continue our conversation with Jeremy Wilcox of Custom NYC Tours about what New York was like when the British were here as colonial masters. We'll be back in a moment.
2: You're listening to Talk Radio NYC. Uplift, educate, empower.
0: We're back back. and you're back to rediscovering New York and our special program about what New York was like in colonial times. Uh, My guest to talk about the British is Jeremy Wilcox, who's the founder and owner of Custom NYC Tours. Jeremy, it's kind of a tough time for the tour business right now, especially um, not having lots of people together. What are some of the recent offerings that you've been offering in these times that people can still take advantage of uh, exploring New York and finding out about its history and about some of its special features?
6: Well, many guides like myself are still operating. Obviously, we've got new health and safety guidelines in place. Um, So I've been trying to more push tours that I believe would appeal to locals, such as my Victorian Flatbush tour. Um, I've also developed a new tour called Billionaire's Row about all these new super tall skyscrapers going up on 57th Street. Um, And then I do kind of fun tours for families like street art tours and things like that. It's just trying to encourage locals, however safely they feel, to keep exploring their own city and supporting local businesses.
0: And how can people find out about your tour offerings?
6: So if you go to my website, which is www.customnyctours.com, uh, all of my main tours are listed there as well as um, you can contact me. I do custom tours, private tours, happy to arrange whatever kind of tours people, uh, people want. You can also find my health and safety guidelines
0: on the site as well. I'm looking forward to doing your tour of Victorian Flatbush, Uh it's when I'm around for saturday and when you and and when you're doing it um speaking of Victorian times moving back even further, Georgian times in New York, uh, let's talk about New York right before the uh, American Revolution. What was New York like before the war started before the revolution so right before the revolution, things are really starting
6: to uh you know heat up there. Obviously, when we think of the American Revolution, we think of Philadelphia and Boston, but New York kind of being the centerpiece of the British colonial uh, uh, era there really was an era where both sides of the conflict were looking towards. Although what a lot of people don't realize is that being the sort of center of the British colony, it really was a hotbed of loyalism toward the British crown. Um, While there was a lot of revolutionary fever in the air with the Sons of Liberty um, and other organizations, it really was considered a a center of loyalists to King George.
0: Um, Also, one thing I found really fascinating was that around this time, New York was the third largest city in the British Empire after London and Philadelphia. So it certainly was a center of commerce. And of course, these these were pre-industrial revolution days before the industrial centers in England, like Manchester and Birmingham, were transformed from sleepy towns to industrial ones with factories. But New York was the third largest city in the British Empire. And one Um, that
6: they considered very, very
0: crucial to holding. And that brings us to the revolution. A bit of history for our listeners who may not know the timeline. Uh, The Revolutionary War started in 1775 after the battles of Lexington and Concord, uh, and the colonists fought for 13 months before independence was actually declared in Philadelphia. And New York was one of the few cities that remained under British control for most of the war, from September of 1776 until the evacuation of 1783. The last uh, battle of the war, the Battle of Yorktown, was fought in 1781 but it was two years before our independence was recognized and British forces withdrew. What role did New York play during the revolution?
6: So New York actually held the site of the largest single battle that was ever fought in the revolution. We really weren't taught this very well in school because it ultimately was somewhat inconsequential which was the Battle of Long Island or the Battle of Brooklyn in late August of 1776. Um, and even prior to that, you know, George Washington had set up headquarters in New York sort of anticipating this conflict, uh, both uptown as well as in downtown. And you also had a sort of mass exodus, you know, uh, there was a read that, you know, nearly a third of the city's population sort of fled the expected, you know, conflict before the Continental Army arrived with George Washington. So the city was prepping for war long before the war even happened. Uh, one of my favorite incidents that sort of proved this contention occurred, you know, just a few days after the declaration of Independence signed when George Washington brings a copy of it to New York. You had this Bowling Green riot where people march down Broadway to Bowling Green in lower Manhattan and basically tear down this statue of King George III and eventually it gets torn apart. And they melt it down and it's turned into musket balls, which the Continental Army uses in their battles against the British.
0: And then the British occupy the city in 1776. And as you mentioned, um, a good number of city residents fled before the British came. What was New York like um, when the British were here? Did, did life change in, this, in the seven years that they occupied the city?
6: Life changed in a lot of ways. I mean, well, first and foremost, when they you know, formally took control of the city in September of 1776, there was a major fire that was started. So a lot of sort of colonial New York actually burned down right at the start of the occupation. Um, but then quietly, you know, New York settled into being a loyalist town. It was the loyalist city in the colony. Um, many patriots fled. Uh, Those who remained were subject to harsh conditions, including being held prisoner on these prison ships that were out in the harbor near where the Brooklyn Navy Yard is today. More people actually died aboard those prison ships than died in any of the actual conflicts throughout the revolution. Um, And you also had a growing network of spies who were working for the Continental Army there because being the hotbed of loyalism, that was the place to get the prime information.
0: Hmm. Did New York change much in the years immediately following uh, the British evacuation?
6: Um, in certain ways, yes. Obviously, once the British evacuated in 1783, life obviously started to normalize, and then New York became started to evolve into the capital. So you had this center of the loyalism toward the British crown eventually evolves within less than a decade to being the capital of this new independent nation. Uh, It's kind of amazing how quickly that sort of turned around and how much the pride came in having New York be the capital of the new United States.
0: Well, it was only the capital, Jeremy, for a year from 1789 when Washington took his first oath of office. It was actually right on Broad Street and Wall Street, where Federal Hall is right now. And the Compromise in 1790 moved the capital out of New York. Much has been said about how New York evolved from a political capital to a financial one. But I'm wondering, was there something about New York and its ethos, the way life in the city was, that maybe had New York be destined not to be the nation's capital? And was it because it was a center of, of commerce that had the, it be the city's destiny, that it would no longer be the new nation's capital?
6: Yes. I mean, I think so. If, even if you go back to New Amsterdam, this colony was first founded By the dutch to be a center of trade and commerce it was literally founded on capitalism and so as it evolved the thing you know it was just it was a trade city and so you know certainly alexander hamilton saw it that way and it continued to grow in terms of its finance and it was also a very established city this was a country that was looking to start over i imagine many of the founders were kind of looking elsewhere and eventually looked toward the potomac because it was a place where you literally could start from scratch and didn't have all the baggage that New York did and have kind of the rowdiness that New York did. It was a little cleaner, a little closer to the center where a lot of the founders actually were from. Um, You know, Washington, Jefferson, Madison, they were all, you know, Southerners by today's standards. And so New York kind of faded away as the national capital, but it remained, and still remains today, as not only the global, you know, the financial capital of America, but is really considered by many to be the global financial capital. And that goes back from the Dutch through the post-revolutionary era.
0: New York being rowdy and not the cleanest, I can't imagine. But um, <clears throat> I want to ask you one more question. in the minute we have left, uh, is there anything that remains in New York from the British period in Lower New York? Is there anything that we can see? There's quite
6: rowdy? a lot that remains. I mean, you can go and you can find Bowling Green Park is still there, the oldest public park in New York City, founded in 1733. And if you know where to look, or you hire the right tour guide, there's plaques there marking the site of the commons, Liberty Poles, uh, the, the fence uh, that surrounded Bowling Green, which is original. You can find markers showing where Thomas Jefferson lived as secretary of state and was the site of the room where it happened from Hamilton. Uh, so, uh, you know, Francis tavern, you know, uh, semi-recreated. There's a lot that remains there. You just have to know where to look and you know how to be willing to read a lot of plaques.
0: Oh. And people can take advantage of that uh, with your tours. Um, Jeremy's website is www.customnyctours.com. Jeremy has been our second guest on this program about Colonial Wilco- about Colonial New York. Sorry, Jeremy. Jeremy Wilcox, thank you so much for being uh, a guest on the show again.
6: Thank you again for having me.
0: Well, if you have comments or questions about the show, if you'd like to get on our mailing list, please email me, jeff at rediscoveringnewyork.nyc. You can like us on Facebook. That's Rediscovering New York with Jeff Goodman. And you can also follow me on Instagram and Twitter. My handles there are Jeff Goodman NYC. Once again, I'd like to thank our sponsors, the Mark Myman team, mortgage strategists at Freedom Mortgage, and the law offices of Tom Siaka, focusing on wills, estate planning, probate, and inheritance litigation. One more thing before we sign off. I'm Jeff Goodman, a real estate agent at Halstead in New York City. Actually, Brown Harris Stevens in New York. We've just consolidated. And whether you're selling, buying, leasing, or renting, my team and I provide the best service and expertise in New York City real estate. To help you with your real estate needs, you can reach us at 646 306-4761. our producer is ralph storier our engineer is sam lebowitz our production assistant is brendan letizia and our special consultant is david griffin of landmark branding thanks for listening we'll see you next time
2: Talk Radio NYC at www.talkradio.nyc. Now broadcasting 24 hours a day.
4: Hi, I'm Graham Dobbin. Join me every Thursday evening for the Mind Behind Leadership here on talkradio.nyc. We speak to people from business, sport, military, politics, all around what makes a great leader. The personal experiences of what's worked and, maybe more importantly, what hasn't worked. So that's 7 o'clock every Thursday evening. The Mind Behind Leadership here on talkradio.nyc. Listen to real stories of real leaders.
3: Do you love or are you intrigued about New York City and its neighborhoods? I'm Jeff Goodman, host of Rediscovering New York, a weekly show that showcases New York's history and its extraordinary neighborhoods. Every Tuesday live at 7 p.m., we focus on a particular neighborhood and explore its history, its vibe, its feel, and its energy. Tune in live every Tuesday at 7 p.m. on talkradio.nyc.
2: Are you a curious person, always asking questions? Do you desire to be in the know? Then join me, Antonia, host of So Now You Know, Thursdays at 5 p.m. at talkradio.nyc. Listen in as I attempt to satisfy that curiosity. I will be talking with amazing everyday people. Join the fun. So now you know on Thursdays at 5 p.m. at talkradio.nyc.
4: Hey, all you listeners looking to boost your business. Why not advertise on Talk Radio NYC with very reasonable rates? Interested? Simply send us a message on our website, talkradio.nyc.